0: Clear prop. Zero seven
1: three, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's nothing. One Bravo, in runway two five, going four mile
2: This is behind the prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby
0: Doss, and his co-host, Major Airline Captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern.
1: Now let's go behind the prop.
2: What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby. How are you? I'm fantastic. I think you might be better introducing this guest today, since you met them and uh, got them on the show. Go ahead. Yeah, it's you know with with my airline
1: job, you just um, you never know who you're going to fly with, and so I was flying uh, actually my last trip. On the seven sixty seven, just about a month ago, three or four weeks ago, flying down to Santiago, and uh, we we have a crew of three pilots on that flight since uh, it's it's longer than eight hours, and uh, uh, you know I so you well, basically one pilot is is taking a break um, most of the time, so there's two of you always up there, and you know you get to know the other guys. Now I I happen to have flown with uh, the other, uh, pilot quite a few times. So we, we sort of knew each other, but, uh, our, our guest, I, I had never met him. And so we, we sat in the, the flight deck together and, and talked for a little while. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, we didn't, we talked a little bit about general aviation stuff, but when we got to Chile, the, the other pilot came up to me and he said, um, the, 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 he said, do you know who Kevin is? And I go, I said, "Well, yeah, yeah." I, he's he's Kevin. He goes, he's a bleeping astronaut. And I said, "An astronaut?" He goes, "Yeah." Google him. And so, we're standing outside the bus down in Chile, and I'm googling, and uh, it ends up that I'm I'm flying with an astronaut. And so I went up to him. I says, Kevin. You didn't tell me you were an astronaut, and he he kind of said, "Well, that's just not something that normally comes up in conversation." I said, "Well, on the way back to Houston tomorrow, and I we're we're doing lots of talking because I I got I just I just want to talk to you. You know, as a kid growing up in the '60s and in the '70s, I mean, there is there was not I, I'm telling you, there's not a young man, a, a little boy on the planet who didn't want to be an astronaut, and here I am flying with one so with that we want to introduce our guest uh kevin ford
0: hey well thank you thanks for that well it is uh it's kind of funny when i when i climb on the flight deck with uh with you guys especially guys flying long haul in the big jet and stuff uh every time i fly i learn something uh, from what's going on in the cockpit so uh even, even though i am a former astronaut right now i'm a junior. Junior Birdman, airline pilot. So, and I appreciate uh, you guys showing me things and and being uh, mentors on the flight deck there. Because, as you know, in aviation, uh, man, there's there's just something to learn around every corner, and in every airframe, and and uh, every aspect of flying. So, that's uh, one of the reasons I am an airline pilot. Uh, you know, I'm 61 already. So, um, I kind of had uh, a fighter pilot career, if you will. I had a test pilot career, and then I had an astronaut career uh all lasted about 15 years each and here i am i've only got about four or five uh years left maybe six to fly uh fly with the airlines and i just uh, i did it mostly because i want to learn about uh what it's like and how it all works and and uh, i enjoy it more than anything else so it was uh, great to be on the flight deck with you guys and seeing how to get to, to santiago and back so thanks uh, well, did, thanks for sharing uh, your knowledge with me and uh, anything you guys want to know about uh flying on rockets maybe i can help you with that too.
1: well that's what we want to hear about so why don't why don't you start by just telling us, us about your your career how you got started how you went from being a uh, you know a a kid riding his bicycle around to to commanding the space shuttle
0: <laughs> yeah i had an awesome schwinn fastback when i was a kid you know I used to deliver papers on it so, but, uh, you know, just, just to start out, don't Google me. Uh, Google, Google somebody else, uh, some other space flyers and stuff. <laughs> it's not all that exciting about Kevin Ford, but I did get to fly the shuttle once in 2009 as, a, as kind of the first officer. You know, I was called the pilot, but flew uh, with a more senior uh, astronaut who had flown three times already before. So he was the commander, flew in the left seat and me in the right. So that was a two-week flight, and then I flew uh, a few years after that. Uh, after the shuttles had retired, I flew a long duration flight the space station up and back on a Russian Soyuz. And that, that was about a five month, just shy of a five month uh, flight. So that's kind of, uh, you know, that was the NASA career. And what got me there was, uh, you know, just the career in, in aviation in general, I never would have imagined. Uh, didn't Didn't even kind of dream of actually being able to fly in space when I was a kid. I grew up in Indiana and I I delivered papers and I worked at a grocery store, but uh, the guy who owned my grocery store was a a pilot, owned a Tri-Pacer, and uh, my oldest brother had uh, his pilot's license, 11 years older than me, and took me flying when I was about 14, and just uh, kind of uh, about the same time read a book by a guy named Michael Collins called Carrying the Fire, and he he was uh, an astronaut on Apollo 11. He was the third guy besides Aldrin and Armstrong. Uh, but he is also a test pilot, and he'd been uh, an Air Force pilot and fighter pilot and uh, had been through the test pilot school at Edwards, and that fascinated me very much and uh, thought, well, you know, I'm just going to do a, a career in aviation. You know, whether I'm an engineer or a pilot, uh, I just just love the airplane. So I flew the, you know, the U-control with the strings, and I built some uh, radio control models when I was a kid, and I launched the SD's Rockets. Uh, like so many of us do because I love to see things fly through the air so and uh, when I was uh, then in high school I, I got a job at this grocery store and uh, like I said the owner uh, uh, was, uh, was a uh, pilot and um, he he asked me what I was going to do with my money I said well I think I'm going to fly take uh, flying lessons and he goes okay well in that case you got the job <laughs> you can That's be great. a black boy and uh, you can cut meat and so forth so And uh, he always stood behind in the grocery store with me. He'd come find me and ask me, you know, what I was learning to do about flying and everything and really got me off to a great start. So I got my pilot, uh, my private license uh, while I was still in high school and then uh, signed up for ROTC and uh, later managed to to go through four years of ROTC while I was at university and then uh, off to uh, pilot training for the air force uh, in Mississippi. And, um, we got a, got an assignment there um, to fly F-15s afterwards. Uh, there's a few steps along the way uh, in training uh, to kind of learn the basics of the new airplane you're going to fly. Also to just get some fighter uh, fundamentals and T-38s out of Holloman Air Force Base and so forth. But started in Germany, so I flew F-15s in Germany, and then I flew uh, a, a couple more years of F-15s in Iceland out of uh, Keflavik. Um, and uh, both those bases, Bitburg and then Keflavik, I think both of those are inactive now, uh, unfortunately, so, and then, and then became a test pilot and flew the F-16 as a test pilot in Florida and uh, back in California again, and uh, test pilots uh, tended to be good candidates for um, being space shuttle pilots, so uh, whether it was any branch of service, really, a lot of different people applied, and Fortunately, the numbers of qualified pilots is probably just a few hundred uh, that apply each time, whereas uh, for the other positions, as astronaut, uh, there are thousands and thousands. So I was lucky not to have too many <laughs> pilot pilots who were uh, competitors for that. Applied several times uh, to be a space shuttle pilot. I applied starting in the mid '80s and, or no, I'm sorry, in the uh, mid '90s, and. Uh, got rege- got a couple rejection letters I still have those at home in my folder and uh, said go uh, go off and find yourself something else to do uh, but uh, then uh, I applied one last time in uh, 2000 and was uh, selected picked up to be a space shuttle pilot so that's kind of how I got there never kind of thought I really uh, could uh, wasn't surprised when I got rejection letters and I was even uh, I was very surprised though when I finally finally got offered the job joined a class of about 17 uh folks at uh at nasa johnson space center in 2000 seven of us were pilots and uh, 10 were of other uh of other occupations maybe uh, we had a submariner, and oceanographer and several engineers and uh, uh some helicopter uh, pilots i think and uh, a couple doctors and so forth in the class and um and we came in 2000 um none of us flew before the Columbia accident. So it was uh, some substantial delay in us uh, getting to space. I didn't fly then until 2009. So from 2000 to 2009, I was a simulator pilot. So we can talk about that a lot if you want to in just a little bit, but then finally got to space in uh, 2009. So I'll, uh, I'll take a breather there, let you, let you guys see if there's anything uh, interested in that, or if, uh, if you want to start talking about how to fly rockets.
2: No, very interested. Uh, I, I got a million little things in my head that I want to talk about the, I don't know if Wikipedia is ever right. Um, but that's the only source that I had, but to, before this call, I'm curious, is it 157 days that you were in space?
0: Yeah, that was the second time. 157 days launched, uh, launched October, twenty. 20- first i think uh, and then came home uh, kind of middle of march of 2013 so yeah 157 days
2: that's a lot of that's a lot of flight time i guess um
0: hey well and- you know a third of it no no maybe a quarter of it was sleeping i didn't sleep as much in space but remember a quarter of that time was i was earning money sleeping
2: there you go the uh and probably i i, I think i missed this before we actually started recording when i when i knew i knew a person that was up there for a while and it was so fascinating every time the the space station would go over i'd watch it go over and it's obviously a, looks like a fast moving star from earth but uh amazing stuff that happens up there for sure what what do what do astronauts do for the other two third three thirds of your three fourths of your time when you're not sleeping
0: yeah, it's a busy, busy place, actually. There's uh, there's always a laundry list of things that they need to get done. Uh, things that are uh, maybe uh, broken or faulty or uh, filters that need changed or uh, some lost item that needs found or um, mostly we like to say it's science that needs to be done. So years in advance of uh of us flying up there um scientists from various universities hospitals uh i don't know you know physics labs uh, astronautical research facilities and stuff think of things that we should test either in the space environment or like in microgravity so we say microgravity we really mean 0 uh, g it's it's as if there's uh, there's no no gravity uh, vector whatsoever so Um, Those experiments then all have to be designed, built, and uh, launched uh, to get up there. And they're Mm -hmm. all stored in various places in Space Station. And, you know, if if everything's functioning well and it's time for somebody to do science, you go pull um, maybe uh, something the size of two or three bread boxes out of a locker and you take all the stuff out and you set it up and you do some science. So uh, we had uh, some fish up there when I was up there. I did a lot of fire experiments um, uh, the way, the way, um, uh, bodies and biology works in space, it it turns out is very different. Surprisingly, even, even at like the very small cell level, even cells respond differently to zero G than they do to one G and uh, something like fish and stuff. They, they grow bone, they grow bones differently, fire burns differently and so forth. So it's really all about science, but, Uh, It takes about a third of our time to maintain the space station, to keep everything working uh, for us to live safely there and uh, so forth. So oxygen generation, carbon dioxide removal, uh, water, purification, all those things, uh, urine processing all has to be working right, you know, just to get through the day. So,
2: Well, I think when Wally sent, he sent me a video, I guess he found when he was flying with you, I think you gave a Thanksgiving day address or something like that and, I, I, I saw an experiment, right, you know how YouTube works, there was an experiment right below it, was of, it was of a gyro, and I was really shocked at how much it made me realize what rigidity in space means, when the gyro wasn't spinning, and then the gentleman spun the gyro, probably talking to some kids at school, but I was impressed with how how much more a gyro meant to me as a 400-hour as a pilot. Once I saw one in space, it was uh, all those little science experiments do do help all of us down here on Earth for sure. No question. So uh, you mentioned that uh, before we started recording that you were a CFI and you maintained that this whole time. Um, and, I, and I think you were an instructor in the Air Force. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. You know, I was an instructor uh, as a test pilot. I never was like the the type of instructor where you had to fly with somebody that was really going to terrify you, you know?
2: <laughs> there you go
0: bro. I did you know I did uh, solo out my son and a uh, you know a Piper Archer and uh, a few friends I took uh to their to their private uh, rating and I give some uh some flight reviews it used to be biannual flight reviews you know as a as an instructor and I instructed in gliders at uh at Tehachapi which is near Air Force Base and uh, we we use those gliders to teach uh, student test pilots so uh, test pilot students all have a thousand hours of pilot and command time in jets before they even come to us. So when you crawl in the back seat uh, of an F-16 or an F-15 or a glider with uh, one of those guys, they, they're already experienced aviators. Uh, but you're trying to show them some things they've never seen before. So some some things can be somewhat uncomfortable. We used to, for example, uh, uh, roll the F-16 upside down, push the negative two two Gs, and do a full, uh, full lateral stick. So even at pretty high speed, and you know when you're hanging from your straps uh, upside down at two Gs, uh, and then you put in full lateral stick, it can be a pretty wild ride. So. And, that, and and the students didn't always, uh, you know, most of the time they put the stick input in and they let go immediately <laughs> because they're like, well, that's, isn't that dangerous? You know?
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't want any part of that for sure.
0: I <laughs> don't want any part of this really. Uh, I don't want to break anything. Is this really what we're supposed to be doing? You're like, yeah, keep trying. You know, you'll, you'll get it. You'll get the data uh, sooner or later. So that's uh, that's what you're teaching. And uh, we used to teach flying qualities and gliders and so forth. So, it's a different kind of instructing than probably a lot of your, you know, behind the prop that the people are used to. But nevertheless, uh, you, you're still trying, trying to get an idea across and you do a, you, you do a, a demo for them, you know, and, and uh, then try to, try to talk them through the errors. But a little bit different category of instructing, maybe.
2: Well, I, felt, I think I was complaining about unusual attitudes like two weeks ago. So I have a feeling that's a lot worse than unusual attitudes, uh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you talked a little bit about the simulator. It sounds interesting. What was what was being a simulator pilot for nine years on the space shuttle? Like I think I landed it once on flight simulator many years ago.
0: When people say, you know, what did you do for all those years? I go, Well, thousands and thousands of hours of simulator time, and that's really not an exaggeration. I probably, you know, would on average do a seven hour sim every week uh, that was like an one orbit sim where you're already in space, like in the space shuttle, and uh, things are going kind of uh, crazy. Maybe um, like like a lot of uh, more advanced airplanes, we had inertial measurement units or initial reference units uh, so that we knew what our attitude was relative to the stars. And, you know, the sim team would make those dump, so we'd have to, you know, realign them, do a manual realignment or something like this or we maybe have a leak in one of our liquid hydrogen or liquid oxygen tanks, and we'd have to deal with isolating that leak perhaps. Or, uh, occasionally we'd end up with, um, you know, an emergency where you have to deorbit quickly, let's say to uh, Isra, France or something like that. You know, some, maybe you're leaking your deorbiting prop. So you need, you need a certain amount of propellant uh, to come home from space. So if, uh, if those happen to start leaking or the pressurization unit that pressurizes them, uh, then it uh, can call for a, you know, an emergency deorbit scenario. So a lot of times they would end up like that. So I would do a seven-hour sim like that once a week, and then we did these ascent and entry sims as well, where we uh, flew off the launch pad, maybe abort back to the Kennedy Space Center, we maybe abort to Torre you know, to Spain, uh, Zaragoza, or <clears throat> some other uh, country. That, that was always cool because uh, from launch to landing at, uh, in Spain was 35 minutes. Wow. Secretly, all the pilots kind of thought, <clears throat> you know, if I if, if if anything is going to go wrong in this flight, it sure would be neat if it was a transoceanic abort landing because uh, I will forever be in the history books for the for the fastest flight from U.S. to Europe. But we didn't want to we didn't want to have an abort, of course, and uh, we never ended up in 130 flights. Five flights, we didn't uh, see a, a real abort situation, but. Could have easily happened with just like one engine failure, you know, after you've launched, uh, after you launched or something like that. You really needed all three uh, shuttle engines and uh, both solid rocket boosters off the launch pad to get you to space. So you could uh, you could do things uh, to stay alive, but probably not to complete the mission with an engine failure on a on a space shuttle. So yeah so we did uh those were you know four-hour blocks of sims and i would do one of those a week or two and then we do uh single systems uh simulators as well where you're just working with maybe the communication system or you're just working with the the flight control system or the computer system something like that where you are just looking at specific uh, types of failures so a lot of simulations and then uh, we did have i think i might have mentioned this to wally we had this uh Gulf Stream that simulated space shuttle approaches, uh, and we flew most of those out in New Mexico to the White Sands landing facility because we needed to come uh, from high altitude and come through a lot of vertical airspace kind of quick. Uh, you know, the the, the class uh, class B in Houston, they, they weren't willing to let us do those space shuttle approaches <laughs> and landing field, unfortunately. So uh, we occasionally did them in Florida to the Cape. Sometimes at Edwards Air Force Base because uh, those are the two prime landing sites. And then uh, we practiced most of them at White Sands uh, out in. Uh, we took out from uh, El Paso Airport and would fly up uh, up north, maybe 70, 80 miles up to the White Sands Range and uh, do 10 uh, 10 airborne simulations, uh, fly into the runways there. And this uh, Gulfstream had the ability to uh, deploy the thrust reversers in flight and allow us to fly this uh, really steep profile that the shuttle had. The shuttle didn't have any engines, but it was very draggy. So, And it was actually much lighter weight than most people would think. So it's big, it's white, uh, very draggy. And when it comes home, pretty light, relatively speaking. So it had about a 20 degree glide path uh, coming down to the runway, just, just to keep wow. a steady speed. So uh, it was wow. pretty steep, and this Gulf Stream could, could simulate that. And uh, a shuttle commander prior to his first landing had to have done that a thousand times. Wow. assignable as, as, as the commander. Uh, the right seater had to do 500. I ended up with about 780 of them, I think, before I flew my shuttle flight. So
2: 700 of these landings in this Gulf Stream that was designed for this. Wow. <laughs> well, I guess that makes. The saying practice makes perfect pretty realistic then, for sure.
0: I don't think Willie got to see me land, but he, he is like, wow, you did 700 landings at a shuttle and that's that's the way you fly a 767? Come on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, ke- Kevin, so tell us, I mean, what is going through your mind when you're sitting on the launch pad? on, on the, the the space shuttle and 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 the countdown is going on i mean i just can't imagine i can't imagine the adrenaline going through your body i mean do you do you want to do you want to pee all over yourself are you excited or you're scared or, or a combination of all of the you know, above or what you know you
0: got uh, you got a diaper on so if you want to pee all over yourself that's okay uh, we we suit up you know like hours before we go out to the lunch pad and then you're climbing in an hour and a half prior so it's uh, it's a long time uh, so in in that suit but anyway I you know I was glad as a pilot on the in the right side you're actually pretty busy there um, there are things you test and uh, things you uh, you start the APU's we have hydrazine APU's to power of the, the the rocket nozzles. And the flight controls on Ascent, and those things are all powered up. So we're kind of busy right right up until uh, launch, and that takes your mind a little bit off of, you know, uh, your fate, if you will, and what's meant for you tonight. (laughs) We did do one abort launch uh, before we – we went all the way to 15 minutes uh, on the – I think it was the 24th of August – that 240 in the morning and thunderstorms rolled in I mean that just it was a night that looked like it was going to be fine and uh, a guy behind me said man I think I saw lightning out there and I said no Pat that was a that was a bunch of moths flying through the the xenon lights just just looked like lightning (laughs) and then he goes I think that's rain on the wind wind windscreen right there and I said no Pat that's just moisture (laughs) (laughs) coming off the tank you know it's got oxygen in it so but he I I knew he was right and then it just let loose and just poured down and after after that I thought man I don't know we got a lot of water soaked into that you know uh, that uh, foam covered tank do we really want to launch tonight but they called it off Uh, we all climbed out went back to crew quarters had steak at four o'clock in the morning and uh, it was about four more days before we actually launched so We'd been all the way to a 15 minute point thinking we were going to launch when they took us back in that first time. Um, the second time, you know, what is a pilot thinking about? I'm thinking about like not messing anything up because if I throw the wrong switch at the wrong time, there's uh, maybe 500,000 to a million spectators that drove to the Cape to watch the launch and they're all going to read about it in the paper the next day. <laughs> but Kevin Ford threw the wrong switch and uh, the launch got scr- <laughs> scrubbed. So I just trying to, you know, think about what's next, like any pilot, you know, I, I had an instructor once ask me, he said, Hey, what are the two most important things in aviation? And uh, his, his answer was the next two things, <laughs> whatever you're point. doing, it's those next two things. And I thought that's it. that, that was really good. And so that's what we focus on uh, as the pilots. Now we do have some guys sitting down on the mid deck who are uh, kind of don't have any windows. They just have lockers and, they're just sitting down there waiting for uh, whatever fate uh, befalls us that uh, that evening. But uh, I was pretty busy. I did watch the attitude indicator as we left the launch pad uh, to make sure we were going straight up. Because, uh, well, you know, pilots we think of everything. We kind of think, well, what would it be like if one solid rocket booster let and the other one didn't? Well, you're going to go really sideways in a real hurry. So. And uh, the truth is, there's a range control officer, uh, an Air Force major, so not even a very high-ranking guy who has the ability to unzip those uh, solid rocket boosters and stop the thrust uh, immediately. So you want to make sure you're going straight off the launch pad. You go up for just a few seconds, and then you start rolling. Uh, You roll, and you point your tail Towards Massachusetts, actually, to go to the space station. So you come off the launch pad, you, you roll your tail, you do a right roll to, uh, we call it heads down. But at that point, you're still kind of going straight up, and then you head off toward Massachusetts, and you fly out upside down for a good long time. So out the right window of the space shuttle, you can see the east coast of the United States and everything. Uh, we went through a cloud deck at fifteen thousand, and another cloud deck at forty thousand. And I'm telling you, it really you see you see it coming because the solid rocket boosters are. I've turned everything into daylight and uh, you see those clouds coming at you you know at about uh, mach one and a half and it's uh it's a pretty spectacular thing to see so you get wow. you get up and you go fast it's uh, it's about an eight and a half minute ride you end up uh, just off cape cod and that's where all the, all the engines shut down and uh you're going fast enough to uh to stay above the atmosphere all the way over to about saudi arabia at which point you uh, you do another burn to To make sure the whole orbit stays above the atmosphere, and and uh, you're in you're in orbit, headed to space station.
1: I I, I have no words. I just I think I think that, and uh, you know, uh, boy, uh, what what can you say?
2: Well, I have a question because there's all these guys. Well, not all these guys. These multi billionaires who are launching their own rockets nowadays keep talking about going into space. What's your opinion? I've read the math and the, the how far away you're supposed to be, but are these guys actually getting into space or are they just jumping up a little higher than than most?
0: So the suborbital guys are getting into space for sure. They're just not able to stay there very long. So uh, if you just if you just go up to high altitude, you definitely leave the atmosphere. Uh, what actually keeps you in orbit, though is this horizontal speed. So you need to be doing about five miles a second uh, uh, parallel to the surface of the Earth. And that, that way, as, you know, as the Earth curves away from you, uh, gravity is, is still working on you. So it's, it's making you turn, but the, the Earth's surface curves away from you just as fast as, <laughs> as your flight path is, uh, is curving downward. So um, yeah, so they're, they're really going to space and they're getting about four minutes or so, I guess, of uh, zero G time and I, I'm I'm sure, you know, it's a very uh, moving experience for them. I feel bad for them that they can't stay a little longer and see, you know, something besides uh, the state uh, that's below them and everything, but that, uh, you know, it, it, some, you know, it hasn't been that long ago that this, this was like just really an incredible thing to do to get up to that altitude and get down safely, and so far, they seem like uh the machines have been behaving and reliable i i I watch those things with a little bit of uh, nervous n- nervous energy because i you know I don't want anybody to get hurt uh or anything like that and uh you know as a as a NASA guy <clears throat> we we had the ability to kind of say you know what uh we we don't like this or that um you know uh we really should fix it uh and there was somebody, you know, we didn't have to worry about it being a business decision per se. Well, you know, we'll have the company go broke if we do that. You know, we just say, you know, if if this is what's this is what it takes, then this is uh, what we'll do uh, to be safe. And so, as a business model, and I haven't worked in that world, so I can't tell, you know, if it's uh, if it's um, well received and stuff. You know, when the operators and stuff say, you know, what we we really need some more redundancy for this or. You know, I had trouble getting you know, this computer rebooted. You know, just at the worst possible time. <laughs> no. <laughs> nervous or whatever. Do we need the redundancy? So hopefully, hopefully nobody will get hurt. They'll continue to learn good lessons, and I hope they, you know, I hope they look through everything NASA has to offer in terms of lessons learned and and put those uh, put those to good use, uh, so that we can keep fly fly citizens safely and everything. As far as getting to orbit, you know, SpaceX is getting a few people. Uh, with their Falcon Nine booster and their SpaceX uh, Dragon Crew Dragon, they're getting some people into orbit uh, for you know just a few days, and uh, you know it's it's the start of start of a new era, I think, in uh, personal space travel and stuff. So sky sky's, uh, sky's the limit or the sky's not the limit, however
2: you say that. <laughs> yeah. I'm fascinated with Elon and SpaceX and all that stuff, so I've, I've paid attention to it. I'm I'm still curious, and I, like you, I think I watch all those launches on uh, Baited Breath, too, just to make sure that they're safe and no one gets hurt. As we wrap up the show, Kevin, you, you mentioned when we were talking before we started recording that you might have more time in front of a rocket nozzle than you do behind a prop. But this show is called Behind the Prop. so there's probably a lot of people out there listening that fly uh, single-engine piston planes today, but maybe aspire to be an astronaut one day. What what kind of guidance or help or suggestions would you make to those people listening that say, "Hey, I want to I want to do what Kevin did. I want to be an astronaut. What, what, what should they do?"
0: You know, they should. Uh, they you know they should start down the right trail. Of course, uh, being you know being in science or being in aviation, kind of. That, that's what space flight is. It, it, it's an extension of that. So, you know, I, I just found that to be the path of choice for me, but, but it interests me. And there, if you want to be an astronaut, there are other ways that we have. We have like I said, we have doctors and oceanographers and submariners and everything, Navy SEALs and stuff who have, who have come to be astronauts. But I would say do most what you really love and you're interested in. And um, you know, it's uh, everything you do isn't really just a path. Everything you do is isn't it, in itself. Whether it's flying single-engine airplanes, you know, learning to land your tail dragger better, and keeping on reading about that, or picking Wally's brain, you know, when we're flying a seven sixty-seven and going, hey, you know, why did you, why did you put that entry in the box <laughs> there, right, Wally? We're always uh, yeah. we're always learning, yeah. you know, from each other every every step of the way, and. Like I'm going to make this a hard altitude and uh, managing, managing your own, uh, your own occupation, uh, trying to learn as much as you can about it and being, uh, really good with it, you know, is, is the most important thing. Uh, And, uh, kind of love what you're doing, uh, most of all, and, uh, make, make the best of it. If you want to keep, uh, aspiring to a different level, like, uh, you know, like I did when I went to, when I went to my, uh, airline pilot training, I was like, uh, fortunately, I was the oldest in the class. And at this company, if you're the oldest in the class, you get your first choice. And there were a couple 757, 767s on there. I was like, just give me the biggest plane you got. You know, <laughs> I know it's going to be hard for me. And it was hard for me. I, when I went through uh, my commercial, my airline pilot training, I worked as hard there as I ever did when I was an astronaut to be, to become and understand uh, how how to do my job as an airline pilot. So, take uh, you know, take put all the energy into what you're doing that you can. Uh, whether it's uh, whether it's your type of airplane, whether it's the places you kind of fly. If you're a mountain pilot or something like that, uh, you know, float planes. See, just learn all you can about it. Fly with other people. Fly the types of equipment, and uh, take every opportunity you can to to learn from others. So. I enjoyed when I was at NASA, I enjoyed doing sims with other commanders and stuff, even though at some point I was assigned to, to one particular commander. Um, and, and we at that point, I could say, well, you know what? I saw this technique once and I can I do it this way? And fortunately, I had a <clears throat> commander. It's actually C.J. Sturkow, who flies for Virgin Galactic now. So he's flying to space on those Virgin Galactic airplanes and I'm like, I, I watch every, I watched him uh, get dropped, I don't know, maybe coming up on a year ago now, get, get dropped off the mothership, you know, and uh, I was watching on Flight Radar 24, which you can, believe it or not, you can see their altitudes and everything and it's like, he's just going down. I'm like, I think he's supposed to go be going up here anytime. <laughs> and he just oh. had to dead stick it down to the runway. So the uh, the engine didn't light. They have since figured out what that anomaly was, and I think they're back off to the races again. But uh, yeah, that's what he does he does for a living now. But uh, um, back to that that topic is just uh, learn what you can from everybody you can, and you know uh, watch what other people do. And uh, man, there's there's no end to the learning. So I've been flying now since I was uh, 16. I started taking my flying lessons. Now I'm 61 now and I, I've never stopped learning every flight. I see somebody do something I like, well, that's a great idea. That's really cool. Or man, I'm going to try that myself. You know, next time I fly, fly into Santiago or something like that. So it's uh, just, just, uh, it's a wide open field. It's a, it's a lifetime of learning and uh, I keep after it.
2: So well, that's awesome, Kevin. I, I really appreciate you joining the show. I know Wally does as well. As always, we tell our listeners to fly safe and normally stay behind the prop. Today we'll say stay in front of the rocket nozzle as well. Thanks for joining us today, Kevin.
0: All right. You bet, guys. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com.
2: Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe.